Well, here we are again. It's Behind the Buzz, a public fit theater company's occasional podcast discussing the myriad processes that go into the creation of our season of plays and staged readings. We have arrived at season number four, episode number four. I'm APF producing director Joe Kukin, and I'm joined, you know it, by artistic director Anne-Marie Perrette. Hi there. <laughs> and today we're going to talk about the greatest play ever written by a human being on planet Earth since the creation of time and the written word, X, uh, by Alistair McDowell. At least that seems to be the sentiment of our guests uh, today, director Jake Staley and actors Brian Genet and Nicole Unger. Um, but first, so, uh, A.M., that intro was a little bit hyperbolic, I will admit. Uh, but I think I'm justified in asserting that this is one of the most enthusiastic uh, casts we've ever seen here at APF. I mean, they, they, they brought the script to us. We read it uh, and inserted it into the, into the season. What's it, uh, what was its appeal to you? There were many appeals. Uh, I liked that it was a, a young cast. I liked that the director uh, who brought the story to me was also in his 30s. Uh, I also like that it's sci-fi. Uh, I love sci-fi and I love the theater. So the blending of those two uh, ideas or mediums and putting them together in one space was really interesting to me. And um, I think that we tell a lot of stories that benefit maybe an older population. And I wanted to reach a population of people in Las Vegas who would be excited about seeing theater. And I think sci-fi is, is a good approach. Yeah, but I think the themes of this play aren't particularly, uh, um, you know, they're not narrow-minded and focused on a young audience. Maybe the, maybe the um, I don't know, the style of the, the show, it being sci-fi and all, but I don't know if the... Well, we should talk to we should talk to. No, I I think I before uh, we turn it over to Jake because he's going to have a lot to say about this. I yeah. think uh, there's a lot of mystery in the play. I think there's a, a wonderful reveal at the end. Um, I think there's a complexity uh, to the text um, because it's very well written. So I think it'll appeal to a, a myriad of audiences. But um, I, I like the initial like idea of it being sci-fi, and and I want all kinds of people to come to the theater, not yeah, just there, not just not just people coming to a show to see a family drama. Yeah, there should be more more sci-fi plays. I'm gonna agree with you there. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring them in because I know they're chomping it at the bit. Let me do the quick intros first. Uh, we're gonna start with you, Jake. Jake Staley received his BFA in theater and dance at the University of Wyoming. Um, <laughs> you know it's true. I love the <laughs> and then he moved uh, to Florida to complete his MFA in acting at Florida State University Oslo Conservatory for Actor Training, where he spent some time abroad actually studying in London. You might have seen him over at Cockroach in Still Dance the Stars, but you certainly saw him here at a public fit in Elephant Man. Uh, he was in August Osage County, Three Days of Rain, Things I Know to Be True. And most recently, he broke your heart, admit it, uh, in... Indecent. He's directed for us, too, staging Gloria and Brilliant Adventures, his first foray into the mind of Alistair McDowell. Hey, Jake. Hey. Hey, thanks hey. for coming. Thank you for that wonderful intro. <laughs> well, let me... Oh, <laughs> Especially s- the dance part. Sit and marinate in it for a second, <laughs> yes. because I'm gonna, everybody else gets one, too. Um, <laughs> we have we got two actors from the show uh, today. Is this a first? Is this the first time we've had three... Folk on the podcast, I hope so, setting precedence every waking moment. This is Nicole Unger. Nicole Unger received her BA 
in theater, stage, and screen acting at UNLV. And then she went to sea, spending a few years <laughs> performing with Disney Cruise Line. And then back on dry land, she played Rachel in Friends, the musical parody, Annie in Bridesmaids, the musical parody, and Phyllis in Tape Face, which I assume was also a musical parody. It's not. Oh, well. It's a comedy show. Not a musical comedy? Or no, not a musical I mean, there's parody? music in it, but Tape so Face could, doesn't talk at all. You stepped out of the musical comedy uh, it's parody. Comedy. <laughs> Clouding. <laughs> okay. Well, here at APF, her credits include uh, stage readings of The River and The Half Life of Marie Curie. Um, and if you missed her in Indecent, you have no one to blame but yourself. <laughs> she also writes, produces, and hosts a podcast of her own with her two best friends called Morning Murders. That's M-O-U-R, Murders, available wherever you download your pods. Hey, Nicole. Hi. Is X a musical parody? It is not. <laughs> <laughs> it's never not, too late. it's never too late. <laughs> and last but certainly not least... Brianne Janae is back. You loved her in our stage reading of Lobby Hero, and you hated her guts in Heroes of the Fourth Turning. So I, 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 I this, disagree. Well, th this show's gonna it's break the tie. It's perspective. I, I agree with that. I like what he did there. There it's you a go. Nice juxtaposition. It's right, and I'm gonna say this show can break that 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 tie. I guess. Uh, uh, Brianne's an old hand at theater in Las Vegas, both back in the day with Insurgo Theater Movement and Test Market, um, to more recently in Pomona over at the Playhouse and in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with the folks over at Majestic Rep. Hey, Brian. Hi. Did they hate your guts in Heroes of the Fourth Turning? Was that not I fair? hated my guts. See? I, <laughs> Emery's giving me shade, throwing shade. It depends on, on your audience. It's that is absolutely true. That is fair. Well, um, I want to... Uh, let's... let's <laughs> Let's stop talking about Heroes of the Fourth Turning for, us for just a second. We can just do an episode two of Heroes of the Fourth Turning. <laughs> Such a good play. Jake, well, let's, but let's talk about X. Yeah. Um, because you were the one, we've, we've talked about this before, that brought us the script. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, that hyperbolic intro that I gave the best mm -hmm. play ever written. You have a real affinity for Alistair McDowell and for his, his, all of his plays, but this pl play specifically, yeah, right. Can you is there? Can you encapsulate? Can you tell me what the appeal is for you? I don't. We we started doing uh, Pomona. We read it maybe two and a half. That's years. an Alistair. Yeah, now, excuse play. me. Yeah. So there's a couple of plays we've already done written by Alistair McDowell. Pomona being one of them uh, that we did about two years ago. We keep doing these plays in as January. As a stage reading, and then we did Brilliant Adventures the January after that, and now we're kind of <laughs> mid-January doing X, so we keep doing this Alistair McDowell you thing You devoted every year. your life to <laughs> the work of Alistair <laughs> yeah, McDowell. As long as he keeps bumping out you know, plays, we'll be fine. Um, I, but we fell in love with Pomona just from its sort of ridiculous, kind of raunchy. I mean, I, I guess I'm speaking personally for why I love it. It's ridiculous, raunchy. It's, it's really seedy it has these themes that you don't normally see in plays yeah i don't care um, about pomona tell me about x uh yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so, there's always like a sci-fi element to it or there's always this otherworldliness to it but the, they can also be paired to along with x just this idea that it's kind of a living room drama as well when it boils down to what it is it's it's just people almost a family having strife with each other um, but the themes surrounding it are science fiction, or in this play, there's certainly themes of climate change or, uh, um, you know, regret of the past. And um, I, I just love the way he uses language and uses these conflicts with characters to 
um, create something new, create something very accessible, I guess, for our generation. But as you mentioned in the intro, I think a lot of the themes in this, you know, especially what is revealed in the end, no spoilers, is very universal. And it makes... Well, don't you like to do a little bit of it and then spoil it and like uh, say stop right here? <laughs> I, I would, I would hold off spoiling it. Yeah, here at yeah. the top, we can spoil it later as we get into it if you really My, want to. No, I want. I don't want to spoil it right now. We maybe in ten minutes or so. But... I feel like we do spoil a lot on the podcast, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm wanting to dig into the spoilers in a bit. Okay. So I'm like that's the juicy stuff. But yeah. Um, as of right now, for well, those the, the, of you who haven't stopped. There's there's something at the end of this play, and I still can't really put my finger on it. It makes me cry every single time. Literally, huh. even every the, time. the other day, I was bawling tears in front of them, trying to give them notes, and mm-hmm. I'm like, this, this is so weird that you know I I feel it so deeply, and I can't really put my finger on. Do it. we need to stage an intervention? Is this a? <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Is this I need therapy moving uh, forward? For, I have I have mommy and daddy issues. Or Do something. you have that same know. reaction, Nicole? You jump right in. Is that a similar? Uh, similar, yes. I'm. He very much bawled his eyes out every single time we ran the scene. But I do have a strong emotional connection to the last part of the play specifically because it reminds me of um, very deeply of something that's happened in my life um, only a couple years ago. So, oh wow! Uh, it just kind of revisits that in a beautiful way. So I think that it's a nice honor to the experience that I had, and it's. Um, paying forward that emotional connection I had with someone who is no longer with us. You know, I always find when we start these podcasts, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry and glad to hear that at the same time, Nicole. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to just... No, it's okay. I didn't need a steamroller over that. I find that during these podcasts that we jump in right away with the, the big themes of the play, and it makes me feel this, it makes it blah, 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 blah. Brian, what's the play about? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I should have covered that. No, no, um, you're... <laughs> all is well. I haven't read it. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> Jake seems to like it though. <laughs> no, uh, okay. Uh, what's the play about? My mom asked me this question when I was on the phone with her the other night. And I almost crashed my car because I'm like, oh, that's such a. What is? How? Uh, what's it about? Um, I guess like the synopsis is it's about um, uh, a crew on a research base on Pluto and they're stranded and they have no contact with Earth. And they start to slowly lose their minds mm-hmm. and like what that entails. So I guess that's what it's about. Plot wise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Plot wise. In a similar but like, sort of simple term. I don't know. That, that, what is it about? I don't know. No, that's a good. That, that's we, exactly. yeah, we literally that's the were talking about that. Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted line. to hear. Yeah, and, I really wanted to hear. And there's some climate change issues. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, well, those are themes. I mean, yeah, uh, the, yeah. play, the, the plot, though, is as. It absolutely Yeah, it is part of the plot. Is The reason they're there is is Earth is no longer inhabitable. This is probably. We've kind of guessed. And we're looking to Pluto? Really? And they do address it in the play. They're like, yeah, well, what's the point of us being out here? You right. know, like they send, they send the British out here. The 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 new people or the retired or the old out here. They don't send the young Americans, blonde Americans, to Pluto. They send them to Mars. You know? <laughs> so it's it's, it's, it's kind of covered that this is the the runts almost as it were the runts the runts going yeah. to to Pluto. Is it is it. Is the date mentioned in the play? Have it, we set a futuristic it, date on when this is all supposed to take place? It's not, but Leia, who is our dramaturg and is doing a beautiful job, we've discussed this, and we we at first were like, let's try to push it up far as as far as possible. So it's like, maybe this is twenty forty five, you know, 
Um, but by our estimation, <laughs> I love that. I love that twenty-five. I love that twenty-five years down the line is as far as possible for Jake, who is twelve years old. No, but I mean, through our estimation, through because now we're into spoiler territory. But through the estimation of the birds have dropped out of the skies, there's no longer you know the trees have all died away, and by the time they get a mission to Pluto, we were like, it's probably twenty ninety. Um, so that's how far into the future it is, but it's super, you know, relatable to present times because they're referring to this imaginary future that's coming on. Yeah. Is that actually based on like clues in the text or? Yes. So there are clues in the text about the date. Very subtle, but it's stuff like Ray, who we're estimating is maybe 50 saying, yeah, I can, I about remember the time when the birds all fell out of the sky. And so we're like, all right, well, when will that happen? And how long into the future is that? If the, if you then add six, 50. when that, yeah, we yeah. got to add 45 years probably to that. I see. So that's where we've kind of been like, it's probably around 2090. Um, so is, is it, so guess. in the style of sci-fi, okay, there's, sci-fi, I guess, is a huge umbrella for style, but within that you know, construct sci-fi. You've got your you've got your Logan's Run sci-fi where everybody wears jumpsuits and it's all clean and shiny and the mm-hmm. future looks like a, a a Sears, you know, leisure wear ad. Mm-hmm. And and then there's your Blade Runner future yeah. where everything's rainy and gritty and the sun never shines and we're wearing similar uh you know, clothes are just dirtier and our boots are stompier and, and what have you. Where does this fit in that sort of if we're saying yeah, if we're saying Logan's Run is one end of the spectrum and Blade Runner is the other end of the spectrum, I think from my subjective take, and I think it's more objective. I would say it's more Blade Runner. You know, it's more of the gritty things are falling apart. This is a dystopia. They paint the world back home, which we don't see. It all takes place on this base, but they paint the world back home being very run down. People far too close together. Breathing in each other's farts, I guess, is what they. Well, I guess that's happening on the base. Spoiler, too, but, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, you know, this that's idea. Now, well, <laughs> that's sorry, during rehearsal. <laughs> right now on this podcast. Oh, good lord! Yeah, you're not sitting next to her, I am. So the idea that's painted is that these buildings, what I picture is like this smog just kind of covering the planet. The They describe the sun that started to fanny out. So maybe that's the cause. But there's definitely uh, looks to the fact that we've, you know, hunted all the animals or, you know, killed all the crops. And now everything's processed through machinery. And food is just at our disposal, but it doesn't taste good. And there's nothing really to do. Perhaps machines have taken over all the jobs. So it's kind of, it's a very believable future that he paints and the consequences of, of, you know, what happens to the psyche through that. She told us some fiction and enough times passed that she's convinced us it's fact. That's ludicrous. She's implanted a false memory. Oh, she drew us. She's convinced us that something that never happened, happened. Why would I do that? Because you're insane! One of the things that, that strikes me about McDowell's writing is that he can really straddle the the line between dark and funny he can he can mm-hmm. really um, inhabit both worlds pretty comfortably is that true in this play as well Brian is he is this as funny as it is dark I mean it seems to be dark I might be I don't know where you guys are going with no it. I think yeah I think it's very funny it's definitely like probably the first act there's there's quite a lot of funny moments um and this is a four-act play, is that correct? Uh, we're adding two more. So it's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a two-act play. Just. 
I wanted to add on to uh, kind of this discussion about like the futuristic nature of the play, because I feel like yes, the play takes place in the future, but it's there's also like a sort of analog nature to everything that's on the base that kind of makes it feel like really very current. Like there's nothing in the dialogue necessarily that makes you go like. Mm, I can't relate to these people because they're future people. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, it's not like, like the hologram pops up and they're interacting right. with it. And and yeah. I mean, McDowell yep. was very, very kind to not be like. And then they <laughs> they, they phase onto. The- yeah, they te- they teleport. They teleport across the stage. <laughs> he does that in Glow and other plays where you're like, how the hell are you going to do that? Right. But there's he not, does do magic. that. Yeah, but he hasn't in this one. There is one thing that happens that you're like, how the hell are we going to do that? But I think we figured. It I love I love his stage directions because he's like. And then this happens, and you're like, all right, well, I guess we got to figure out how to do that. Yeah. But he trusts that you'll figure it out. Does the, the, it, it sounds like you're saying the technology, and, and that's the, the thing that always feels like a speed bump to me in producing sci-fi plays is the idea that, you know, we're presenting something in the future, but as producers, we're stuck with current day technology. Right. We can't create, as you suggest, Brian, holograms and teleporters. Is, is everything in the play also sort of... Also, we're stuck with the limitations of our budget. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, is everything in the play sort of familiar technology? Are we going to come in not knowing what the the ray gun does mm. or the special it... tricorder uh, hashtag Star Trek uh, <laughs> royalty payment? No, I, again, like, I feel like he does a really great job about keeping it grounded in the way where even though it is in the future, there's a lot of stuff from the past that is present in like among the crew how do there's, you mean well like there's a, a watch that is worn that is like what is it anal- analog or yeah. whatever it's called yeah. and so there's nothing i think that's direct, like there's even old photographs like there's a lot of stuff that is present on stage there's and with these characters board. guess who board there's yeah. a lot of things that are things that we would still use today familiar. but it's very familiar what's it for i already gave you the key ring now write me the algorithm i can't write it without details can i like what's it for what are we looking for what's the unknown what's x well i can give you the figures but i'm not comfortable no it's all right no i'm not that bothered this this got old anyway time x is time is that because of the dystopian state that's happening on Earth, and so things have gone backwards? Uh, because oh, you, do you know what I'm saying? That might be a commentary in it. I don't think that's ever addressed directly, but they do kind of refer to the fact that they've gotten. I mean, in a way, just that they're the the they get the low end of the stick. You know mm-hmm. that they they've just they were sent out here to set up this base. And they sent these flat packs out to Pluto. They set up base for 18 months, and it's kind of a pointless, you know, endeavor. And that they're waiting to be picked up. So yeah, I think it's they don't have a whole lot of luxuries at their disposal, and they're they're holding on. There's also themes of holding on to the past That's through one say. character, yeah. so everything becomes very tactile. The photos light trapped in paper, and it's yeah. something you can hold on to. It's not something that's just ones and zeros. And then yeah, uh, there's another character very much obsessed with the future. Mm-hmm. And then there's a character obsessed with only being in the present and ignoring the future and the past. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of those usages of props by Alistair McDowell are very intentional of, you know, it's commentary and symbolism. Um, and then, of course, I've added a few <laughs> that I'm like, yeah, just I want to see that in there, too. But only they wouldn't for, happen like, to be 
video game related, wouldn't they? Yeah, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> I was like, who's not going to have a video game? You know, so yeah, there is going to be a one. That you, you, I don't know if you said that. So, oh, no, you saw our prop list. You knew. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but I think, I think specifically with the guests who board and the, and the watching, it, it is to ground um, these people in something that is familiar to mm-hmm. an audience so that they're not, you know, completely... You don't have to create an entire new world. It's a familiar world. It just happens to take place, what did you say, 90 years in the future? So we... Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's like a comment on life in general, right? Things always come back and there's stuff that we always hold on to that's right. generations old, but we hold on to it because there's a piece of us that doesn't want to let go of the past or that legacy in that generation. So we continue to bring it forward with us, and I think that's very present. And thank goodness, too, all the clothes that I've held on to for the past 20 years are coming back into style, yeah, finally. So. Well, and the one thing I think of, too, is like past movies like Back to the Future, which is a brilliant movie, but what was that 1985 right that that came out because that's when they go back to or whatever okay and they were estimating they were estimating 2015 we'd have flying cars we'd have this we'd have that all Mm -hmm. these ai robots you know fruit that fell out of the ceiling in our dining rooms and and they got some things right but by and large a lot of that estimation of what the future looked like in 2015 probably wasn't too terribly different in our reality from what it was in 1985 outside of the fact that we had phones that did everything for us now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We still went and got gas. We still had cars that were pretty much the same. They just looked newer. Mm-hmm. And we were still consuming in the same way. Um, we had the internet now, but how do you showcase that? You know, I don't know. It's it. So I think that's what Alistair McDowell has done with this is, is gone. It probably won't look that much different. There's just some computers in the walls now, you know? Well, and he's also not making bold predictions. So, I mean, yeah. the, the writing is on the wall as far as climate change goes. You can see us heading in a, in a direction. It doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to, to see a failing planet. He hasn't asked you to stage, you know, laser gun fights and characters with, with tentacles and, and things are. like that. Well, <laughs> and, and that's just smart. That's just, that's just smart directing right Why there. Why wouldn't you? But I mean, the, the, it, it seems like a very familiar, easy... I won't say easy, but a, a future that doesn't require much prognostication, right? right. He's, he's not claiming a visionary status here. He's creating what you've suggested, Brianna, family drama, you know, of, of people losing their minds in isolation. Well, and that shows some insight on him as a playwright uh, because he understands how theater works, mm-hmm. right? If he wants to m- blend these two realities, he can't break theater companies and make it impossible for this play to be per- produced. Right. So there's still a lot more coming up at A Public Fit as we continue in this, our 10th season. We've been talking about Alistair McDowell's X. It opens February 9th and runs through March 4th over at the Super Summer Studio Theater. Monday evening, industry nights are back. Check out our website for available dates and special pricing. Uh, March brings us Lauren Gunderson's absurdly funny exit pursued by a bear back over at the library. And then our final main stage show produced in association with Vegas Theater Company, Dancing at Lunasa, opens downtown at the Art Square Theater in April. We'll close out the season with Craig Wright's wistful reunion play, The Pavilion, back at the library in June. Uh, I hope you were writing all of that down, but if not, you can catch up with... All of our shows, readings, and special events by visiting us at apublicfit.org. And of course, upcoming episodes of Behind the Buzz will help shepherd you along the way. And speaking of Behind the Buzz, I need to mention the missing episode. We had a great conversation with director Gigi Guzado and 
Majestic Rep's artistic director, Troy, heard about our reading and their production of The Lifespan of a Fact. But a catastrophic technical glitch prevented us from sharing that conversation with you. And since Troy was so generous with his time and his perspective, um, I wanted to make sure that everyone who saw and enjoyed our reading had a chance to see what they've come up with over there at Majestic. So their production of Lifespan opens February 22nd. Um, run over and see it if you get a chance. Why aren't there more um, sci-fi plays, Brian? Probably because sci-fi kind of has that intrinsically, like, future technology that you need to have like CGI or you need to have like really complicated, you know, technical things that don't exist in the real world. That's really yeah. hard to pull off on stage. Yeah. Well, we do it in the movies. So we can't figure out how to, how to do it on stage. I do think that we're getting closer to being able to do more of this stuff on stage and within budget with like the how 3D printers are becoming more accessible and you can kind of create a lot of interesting things in an easier way. We're, we're starting to lean towards that. So I do feel like we might see more of it in the near future. I also, I also think that uh, in terms of generation, uh, this generation, your generation, is very interested in that because there's a lot of artistry that is involved in creating theater. Right? So if you blend the idea of the artistry of telling the story and you think of sci-fi, I think those two things go very hand in hand. It's just this particular playwright decided to take a risk mm -hmm. in that direction. And I'm hoping that there'll be future playwrights who decide to do that because I think it's an interesting style of storytelling. I'm not as familiar with the totality of, of McDowell's canon as I think you are, Jake. Are all of his plays, do all of them have that fantasy sci-fi... There's always something in there, yeah, that I think makes you go, ooh, what? There's a, you know. There's this... a couple we haven't read. Sure. <laughs> there's, but the the idea of like, there's a cardboard box, you know, but you can describe Brilliant Adventures as like a sci-fi Western almost. And yeah. then this one's a sci-fi, excess a sci-fi horror. And, um, you know, they there's always some sort of anomaly, very interesting thing that is way out of the ordinary. You wouldn't find it in the real world, probably, or at least today. Um, well, and even in X, outside of the fact that it's a sci-fi, there's elements in it that are otherworldly, as it were, that there's an outside force out there coming in, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, that has nothing to do with the technological world or the fact that they're on Pluto. There's a horror element. Um, so yeah, he always does something, and I think he acknowledges that in some of his interviews. He talks about always doing this sci-fi thing or setting it on Pluto or whatever, to take us uh, take a step backwards as an audience to view then and crystallize the relationships and the characters as being the important part rather than the minutia of well back in this date and time in history this was what was going on we can just focus on the relationships hopefully i'm close enough to the mic anyway <laughs> um i felt like i was getting farther and farther away <laughs> um anyway so th does that make sense i hope i answered something there but no, um, th yeah. th that does i think that's a pretty um a pretty close reading of his work um Let's say this play was not set on Pluto. Let's say it was, you know, set in the middle of the Serengeti, or this was set underwater, or it was set, I mean, any number of places, set in, in the middle of Cairo. Um, 
you're you're saying that those things are less important than yeah. the because they're, they're not meant to be ignored, but they're meant right. to be put on in a place where the focus for the audience can be on the relationship between the characters and the right. and the family dynamic, quote unquote. It's not because it's not really family; it's a crew. It's yeah. It's can we go spoilers? Well, Is it seems like a pretty good time. So let me just give a, a warning if you're listening now before you've seen. Uh, X and you want to be surprised because there are some surprises. It, it, a it's lot, a mystery man. and yeah, you know, a lot of surprises. Uh, maybe turn us off now and come back and, and uh, uh, finish listening later because we're going to do some spoilers now. Jake, go ahead. So yeah, I mean this is, the characters are basically a family without us knowing about it or at least some of them in particular the two that are with us today. Yeah. Both Nicole and Brian technically play mother-daughter and we don't know that till the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that Maddie is on the ship and that she's the youngest crew member and she's uh, kind of dancing around. That's who, who Nicole plays and Brian plays the lead that is takes over as the captain. And uh, Gilda eventually realizes that Maddie hasn't been on this base, that she's kind of created her out of thin air and this girl never existed on the base that we've seen her have conversations with. And then later it's revealed at the very end she walks back out that, oh, that's my daughter, and I've transposed those memories of my daughter throughout time over other people that actually existed on the base. That sounds complicated. It's super complicated. Is it? I mean, it sounds almost complicated to the point of a barrier to entry. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's again, I, this is what I talked about in my director's note. It took me four or five times reading through it to get that. I'm hoping some people get that right away and we've done a couple there things. are some yeah. things that i'm trying to do throughout the show that might clue in what's happening with, yeah. that's outside of just dialogue so transpose can you can you explain that a little yeah. bit more to me so there's there's two characters um gilda and clark who are actually on the base mm-hmm. that uh, fall in love essentially over time and they have memories together that we see. We, we see scenes of them, you know, interacting. Well, there, Maddie is a character that replaces them, mm-hmm. replaces either one of them in certain scenes. And you see Maddie's presence instead of Gilda. Or you see Maddie's presence instead of Clark. And she'll magically leave the stage and then the very next stage direction is Gilda enters and says the exact same thing Maddie has just said, but you don't really notice it on your first or second read because you're like, oh yeah, one character left and the other character walked on and she just happened to say the same thing. And then you start going, oh no, she is the same person. She is, it was Gilda on stage the whole time. You just thought that there was this other girl there named Matt or other woman there named Maddie. Does this make sense? That's yes, no, no, it does okay. make Okay, but Let's, now my question is, Yes. why? So he does answer this in the play, um, which if you want to speak to it, it's your line, Brian, but uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, okay, so yes, um, when Gilda is talking about her love for Maddie and she says the line, um, I, I love you so much, you're in everything. I can't remember half of everything, half of anything, but you're in all of it. You're in everything all jumbled around. Mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of, I mean, for me, like this is in our version of it. I, yeah. I don't, 
there's nothing in the script that says this is what's going on. So we're this, we're a hundred percent. I we are. I leave room for it. Like, Alistair's gonna listen and be like, na 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 na. Only character that ever names me. No one else says my name except for Gilda. She calls me Maddie. No one else says Maddie. Oh, Maddie. Uh, I'd like to run some tests on the uh, girls tomorrow, if that's okay. I run tests every day. I know. It's my job. I know. I'd just like to watch, if that's okay. No, we ain't afraid. I'd like to be more involved. Okay. I think it'd be useful. You're the chief chief. Oh, Maddie. I, uh... <laughs> Why did you let me say Ray's name wrong? His. His surname. I was saying it wrong. The entire time. Nobody ever told me. And then at his funeral, the service thing that we did, you were laughing. It's not a At thing. his funeral. He thought it was funny not to correct you. It wasn't really about you, it was just... It's me. Yeah. It's a mean thing to do to someone. It is, yeah. He might have lied to me a bit more if I hadn't been saying his name wrong the entire time. Years. Sabowski. Sabowski. I know now. You told me after we'd wheeled him in the freezer. No one else says Maddie. Yeah, it's a magical thing where she has you have this whole scene with Josh who plays Clark yeah. and you're interacting for 10 minutes on mm -hmm. stage. The moment you leave and the moment you enter as Gilda, all of a sudden he goes, "Tell oh, Gilda, Gilda about your bomb shelter," is what he says. But he's never right? said and the, he's any just name been talking him, yeah. to Maddie but never says never the says word Maddie. Maddie. So in short, our interpretation is the correct one. <laughs> how, well, yeah, you've got me wondering, how long did you guys spend on on table work for this one? And did all of these answers come from the table work, or did you have to discover these on your feet in actual blocking rehearsals and, and run-throughs? So this was stuff that we were working. I mean, Brianna and I have been going over this. We This is both of our, our you know baby in a way that we've been looking at it since, what, January of last year or something. But um, once we knew we, we got the green light in April or May or whenever that was, I started reading it, reading it, reading it, and... Um, I just I think we discovered and discussed that pretty like a month ago. I have to something. It was interesting during uh, during the final two week uh, rehearsal process for Indecent to have you come up and and ask Anne Marie I questions about X. That was <laughs> kind of it was clear that where your mind was at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, X. All right, X. Uh, no, it's been such a busy season and I love it. But um, yeah, I I feel a little more uh, just to talk about craft a little bit. I feel a little guilty, but I'm also really so passionate that I feel like I'm coming in more on this show rather than Gloria and um, Brilliant Adventures and being really pushy. <laughs> maybe it's maybe a bad word, or really just like I really see it this way, and um, uh, that was one of those things that I'm like, it's definitely this. It's it's you're substituting in for. Clark and Gilda, right? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at Nicole now. Well, we've this, talked so. about this before that the that the sort of level of risk taking that one can can you know achieve during readings is different from a from a fully staged production. You, your yeah. your decisions have to be sort of cleaner, clearer, and and um, more emphatic. I think in the in the productions um, simply because they are productions, and you have to face a you know, four-week run of of the play with people you yeah. know coming in and understanding it and feeling something coming out of it. Yeah. 
Also, I think uh, that what you're talking about is you have a very strong perspective about your concept. Yeah. It's not that you're being pushy. It's just you did the research and you have a very strong point of view, and that's admirable. Right. I, I hope it's that. It feels strange because there's a lot of, uh, and I hope it still feels this way for everyone, but there's a sense of, especially because I have probably more, definitely more experience as an actor, and you want to be in that collaboration with a director. And so, I, and I'm haunted by old directors in my mind now from my past, and I'm like, why were they this way, you know? And then now in this process, I'm like, oh, I get it. <laughs> like, they were just being like, sorry, we don't have time. I really want it this way. Go full throttle, go. You know? <laughs> and so I'm like cutting people off me like, sorry, go back, do it again. It's got to be, re- you really got to push. Come on, I believe in you. And then I'm like, uh, okay, I see it. I forgive you, past directors. <laughs> no, you know, I'm not talking about you, too. He's talking, talking about, about you, Emory. He's talking specifically he about not you. not talking, talking about, about me. Like, He's under- talking about you. Undergrad <laughs> people, grad people people and and uh people in the youth that i was like why are they being so mean when in reality they were just giving a note well let me sh- let me shift gears just a little bit um in talking about the the spoilers and the yeah. characters that don't exist and that they are you know conglomerations of other characters and characters layered on top of each other oh my good lord is this is this play going to be accessible to an audience mm. is it is it is it going to? I, I assume that all, all of these things won't make sense right away because that's sort of the nature of a public fit productions to begin with. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I'll remind everybody that anybody who comes to see the play more than once gets a fifty percent discount on any returning yeah. uh, r- returning attendance. Um, but is there a is there a risk of alienating an audience with with such uh, complicated character relationships? I think so. And the, this was a little bit with Brilliant Adventures. There were certainly some people that saw it and were like, I didn't like it, or I, you know, that wasn't my cup of tea. So that that is always the case. You know, we did Pomona, and I think my parents were like, yeah, that wasn't, you know, for us. And I'm like, okay, well, trying to, you know, make things as clear as possible, make the relationship strong between the characters, it's certainly very confusing, and you do need to lean forward and and pay attention as an audience. But I'm, I suppose I'm trying, and I know the actors are trying and care about this deeply to make it as accessible, clear, concise, and... Also, completely separate from that, there is the element of you don't need to understand it by the end because I didn't the first time through, but it was powerful to me because there was something in there that I'm like, I don't quite understand it, but I feel what this what this was about. And because I feel what it was about, it was powerful for me. And it, it enticed me enough to go back and read it again and read it again and read it again to where I was like, oh, now it makes sense. There is this idea in there that, oh, it's just all make-believe or this didn't happen or this is... When you really read it through a few times and really maybe hopefully see it once or twice, it all makes sense. Everything you see up there happened. Well, and I think, too, we have a, a pretty pretty smart audience oh yeah you know the, the 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 buzz itself the after um after show discussions that we always have are always illuminating and i'm always f- just flabbergasted by what an audience will glean from a play uh that you never intended that just mm-hmm. the the insights that, that that they have i know that um <laughs> telltales has school here a little bit uh i know brian doesn't care much for the buzz. I know Nicole does. I never said that out loud. Not out loud, but I just know these things. But no, I, but so I wonder what for like, how do you see these discussions following this play going? For me, so the first time I read the play through, uh, 
I was confused for most of it until the ending. And for me personally, uh, there's a lot of elements of dementia that are throughout, which is something that is really close to home with me. See, that's what I took from it, too. Mm-hmm. I don't me know all too. these other things that's, you're talking about. It seemed yes. like, I don't even know that, a big spoiler here for me, and, and this is, you guys have, you know, you're, you're going to open in like two days. It doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> in my opinion. We've got a month. But I don't, I don't even know that it's set on Pluto. I don't know that that's Ooh. really where the play so is. I think that I there's a lot it, of the play that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, I can see it going both ways. Sure, so, uh, when you've I made first, a choice. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I love the, what we're doing with the show, but I even I had that. The that. first time I read it through is that a lot of it is not actually happening. It is dementia and the way that the mind is manipulated memories and combined fiction and reality for this one person. And, and distance. Created, Pluto, and, you yeah. know, I was going to ask why Pluto, and it's, it's just the, the farthest away. one yeah. away, and it's not a planet anymore. You know, we've downgraded it to... Planetoid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's an unsure thing. It's unknown. There's a lot of things that constantly change, yeah. which when you're dealing with dementia is a constant thing that happens. When my my grandmother was going through it, we would have these conversations where she thought I was a completely different person yeah. and was so set on I being this person. And now when I do these scenes with Breon, it's, it's very real because that's kind of what's happening. Like I'm a completely different person than who I actually am. Um, so it's a very interesting thing to be uh, in this production doing that when I lived something very similar for almost a year when so my grandmother You see audiences trip. picking this up and wanting to talk about I it? I do, especially after. people who have gone through it and have an understanding. I've um, had conversations with people who have read X and we've had similar discussions yeah. about the idea of dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I think will come up for certain people. And Brian, do you see the value in, in the buzz now? What? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you coffee, agree, Joe. I'm like, I'm quaking inside. Maybe you agree. Um, well, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it too. I always enjoy those those discussions because, like I say, the audience always brings something uh, to it that you never expect. Yeah, I imagine mm-hmm. it'll run the gambit between climate change. There's definitely the elements of dementia that mm-hmm. that happen, especially towards the end, and that you could you and this is why I said it in the director's note that it is. 100% valid to be like no this was happening you know inside of her mind you know mm-hmm. or, or that these are all sure that's just as good of an interpretation I I personally don't agree but it doesn't mean it's not right um, but there, there's a lot of different directions that the these buzzes could take I'm intrigued by them because I know the audience will be like what was that yeah. you know <laughs> certain members will obviously have to be like I don't get it and be like okay well what what can we piece together um I'm gonna try, again. Right. Our goal is to not make it confusing. I'm trying to make it as clear cut. And this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Um, our our goal is to not confuse, but it is to make a clear, concise play that that you know makes them feel something and look at something differently. Every single transmission we've said has been marked as received. Okay. Do you get what that means? Our computers, their computers, everything works. Everything we send is getting to Earth. Everything's getting there, fine. No one's sending anything back. No one's on their end of the phone. Okay? I can't make someone who's not there answer our transmissions. That's part of the appeal of of McDowell's plays, I think, is that, like, they're sort of paradoxical and, like, even when you feel like you have the answer, there's something in there that makes you go, wait, that can't be right. <laughs> um, and so that's what kind of makes them stick in your head and keep thinking about them. And I remember when Jake was directing Brilliant Adventures and we 
were leaving a rehearsal and we got a call from one of the actors that was like, well, wait, what if it's this? And we were both just like, okay, this is great. You're thinking about it this much. That's awesome, you know? Mm -hmm. So, it, and you know, you, you like lay your head down at night and suddenly something springs into your head and you're like, what if this is the thing that makes it all make sense? Is that, is that what audiences want from theater? I hope so. I don't, it's, it's what I like want. Music. It's kind of like music that, you know, that they came up with that thing where music fades out. If it fades out, it keeps playing inside of your head over and over and over again, and you, you're more likely to remember it. That's what this one feels like. It's like it kind of fades out, and you go like, it's still going on inside my head after I've left. And certainly some people want music that just cuts off immediately, and you go, okay, now I'm done with that. I don't need to think about it. But I think to... For things to be, you know, artistic, truly, it's it, it needs to live inside your head rent-free for a little bit. It needs to linger. It needs to linger and make you go like, damn it, I can't get that out of there. And why? Let me investigate the why underneath that. Mm -hmm. um, this one is certainly one that does that. And the other ones that I've, I've been in of his, and, you know, other non-Alistair McDowell plays, too, that I think are really powerful are the ones that... I keep rethinking of those powerful moments and, and why did it send shivers down my spine and why am I crying or why am I laughing? You know, this is so, this is shaking me to my foundation. Why, why, why? Well, and, and Nicole things. brings up an interesting point too that it's about personification and taking things that are, seeing something on stage that feels familiar mm -hmm. and feels like, like you've experienced. It's part of your, you know, it's part of your, your um, um, experience of life. Yeah. yeah, it's gonna resonate with different people for different reasons. Yeah. I think. I was just thinking, you know, some people just want to be entertained, but I don't think that this is this type of play. This is more of a puzzle. It is oh, a puzzle. It, it's it's a puzzle. gonna be entertaining. Oh, I think it's super entertaining. No, I think yeah, it's yeah. entertaining, but you know, some people want to just have the play wash over them, and they sure. don't want to think. Right. No, this right? is not that. Yeah. This is not that. This is more of a mystery. This is a puzzle. This is something where you have to lean in. Yeah, it's an right? escape room, as yeah. it were. Like I love going to escape rooms. I love going to the. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait. What's that? What's what's going on now? This I... is a lot of this play is. What's happening now? What yeah. is that now? Yeah. You know? I think for some people, though, they could also just enjoy the show and, yeah. like, let whatever that is resonate with them versus, you know, trying to solve the puzzle. Because I know plenty of people who just like to observe and watch and maybe don't necessarily dive in but still really enjoy it because there is something they take away. You don't have to go so deep into it. You can lean forward and just listen and just let that experience wash over you and let whatever it is be. I'm glad you said that because that was my next question. Was it in the midst of all this thick heavy dripping subtext is it entertaining yes. is it, it mm -hmm. there there is it funny is it moving is it um, emotional is it all of those things that people want to see and the Certainly. reason why people go to theater in the first place to see you know these things happen to live people in front of them on stage mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think so i think one of the most entertaining again spoilers one of the most entertaining elements of this play is the fact that the scenes are out of order mm -hmm. um, and that you go wait a minute why is that there didn't they already talk about this isn't it oh they're dead now oh wait they're back to life wait the time is and you get into the second act and you go oh time is moving forward at an uncontrollable rate a man you know this doesn't this doesn't speak to entertainment it's actually incredibly tragic and sad but it's certainly engaging is the fact that a man gets cancer and dies in the course of five minutes yeah. and you experience that in in all you know whatever it might be five years condensed down to five minutes and see the emotional roller coaster of that um it's not necessarily entertaining but it's definitely engaging that part mm -hmm. um yeah 
Yeah, and just giving you a different perspective on what time is, like, because it deals with time and space and how it can get out of order. Like he's saying, five minutes can take five years or five years can take five minutes. And that's like a very real thing that you can literally experience right now. When I was working on cruise ships, a week could feel like a day and a day could feel like a week because time is what we make it of right mm -hmm. it's a construct so is that a cruise ship thing or is that a disney thing it's a cruise ship thing <laughs> i actually asked other cruise ship people and yeah. it is a cruise ship thing or similar type jobs where you're on that in that kind of an environment where you're you know on a contract for so long in a specific space like even if you're working like at an amusement park and you're housed there it's a very similar experience because mm -hmm. you're just and i'm sure maybe even astronauts feel the same way because you're in a very specific place for a length of time and depending on what you're doing that day your day can feel way out of whack well that's interesting yeah can i can i ask a little just a little bit this is going to feel like a a huge gear shift it's not really i don't think i just want to talk a little bit about staging mm -hmm. uh yeah. because jake you you chose early on that you wanted to stage this in a tennis court tennis setting game. audiences on both sides of the stage sort of glaring at each other with the action yeah. happening between them yeah um you got a little bit of pushback from both am and, and myself but you fought for it and yep. you won and here we're here we are can you talk about zero that? regrets no no good no good I, I god i hope not because no, I, that's... Actually, I don't i don't um, it is, it's definitely, uh, you know, why is one, I, August Osage County had a tennis court. I loved it. I loved that. So why I, cause it felt it, as an actor, I was like, I've never done this. And it felt like you were really there. It, uh, it felt like you were really on stage with people. You were in this reality. You were consumed by it. There was this threat seemingly from outside. Also as an audience viewing that or viewing that in, because the same thing small mouth sounds, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you feel like you're a part of. You feel like you're in the mix. There's also, Amory has her hand up, so maybe I should toss it over. But there's also this, this weird thing that we haven't even covered yet with metamodernism, which I'm trying to work in. Um, of these polarities and this this stretching of time and space. It's all kind of abstract. Ooh. But we've stretched this stage, this intimate setting, which on a base would normally be maybe nine feet by nine feet wide with a table. And we've stretched it over the length of maybe 60 feet long, you know? And there's these voids and this time and space that is kind of infinite. And being forcing the the crew on this spaceship and letting the audience feel as claustrophobic as they do and in the mix of this confusion, there was th those bits of it. Plus, there's a lot of set pieces that I really wanted to explore that you can stretch out on both sides too. So it was practical as well. You're going to have a different experience as a as a director now uh, observing your show with tennis court because what's going to happen is there's going to be the show. And then there's going to be audience on both sides and they're going to look at the show and then they're going to look at each other. Mm -hmm. And if you have somebody who's very engaged on one side, that's going to inform a, a person on the other side. If you have somebody and I, and if this happens and it's not anybody's fault, but if you have somebody who's asleep in the front row, <laughs> is that now. is going, yeah. going to affect a person on the other side of the space, right? Yeah. Because we're all in this collective space together. Yeah. So, uh, I love what you said about the, the claustrophobic nature of it. And since we are a small theater company and we are very limited in our seating, you putting it in tennis court just enhances that feeling of them being on the ship with, with, with the crew. Right. And believing, there's this element of, again, spoilers, believing the reality Gilda is uh, um, creating and crafting 
uh, uh, to the other crew members, especially Clark and Cole in Act 2. She is like, this happened. This girl was here. You saw her. You talked to her. We all, she was eating cereal. Well, the audience is going to see that, you know, a couple feet away from them rather than being separate. And as an observer, it's now a subjective opinion. Like, they were in there too. So I wanted to force, kind of force that upon them a little bit. So there you go. That's why we <laughs> did it. And I, I like it. It's certainly creating some uh, very interesting challenges that I was like, oh, okay, well, we've done that before. And yeah, you can't have your back to the audience for too long right there. We've got to find a reason to move there. So it it's also teaching me stuff as well. Whereas proscenium, I'm fairly confident. I'm like, well, yeah, I know. You can you got to create a triangle. You got to move there. If I already use that space. This one is oh, we we we've got to move more fluidly and and find better reasons to move. And how's your ca- how's your cast? Uh, they're all to just it? they're just so good. So like uh, uh, he has to say that. No, we're right I mean, here again. I it, this was like a dream cast. Uh, uh, truly, I it, when we were talking about this over the summer, I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if so and so could do it? And we kept going. That probably won't happen. That probably won't happen. And then everyone said yes. And we're like, okay, great. So <laughs> you've got a you've got a kid in this one. We do, we do. We have a child. Uh, a child. A child. <laughs> We've got uh, Roxy Weller in it, who's uh, if people know Daz Weller's um, daughter is just outstanding. She's yeah. what? She's twelve, thirteen. She's ten. Yeah. That girl is ten. Yeah. That girl's believe, a genius. That yeah. girl is 10? Yeah. yeah, she is better behaved than any of than the everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it. When I first met her, I Well, was you've like, got What's Tim Burris in the play. It's a really pretty low bar. <laughs> <laughs> He'll love you. I'm Tim Burris. <laughs> Tim is lovely. Um, yeah, she is outstandingly great. She, again, spoiler, she's playing the the antagonist for a while, which is there's this little girl outside the ship that people see and what happens if she gets inside and she's terrifying and awesome we just recorded her voiceover stuff yesterday and you know i wasn't i we all maybe acted by the time we were 10 she is way beyond her years and taking notes and being a professional in the you know workplace she was sitting there for you know maybe two hours watching a run waiting for her entrance and she just had her Back straight up and down. She was buried in her book. She kept checking in. And I was like, is there anything you need, Roxy? She's like, no, I'm good. She follows along with the script every single time. She just follows along. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, after 36 years of my life, I've never been as well behaved in my entire life. (laughs) I I can, I can. You can attest to that. I can attest to that. (laughs) So, yeah, she's wonderful. She's, uh, she's doing great. Yeah. Okay. That, that seems like enough. Does anybody want anything we missed? <laughs> I think, uh, no, I think episode uh, four of, of, of season four is in the can. You guys can uh, go back to rehearsal. And <laughs> Henry and I can go back to doing whatever it is we've been doing. What have you been doing again? Packing. Yeah, she's going to New York in the next couple of days. Uh, nice. So big thanks to Jake and Brian and Nicole for introducing us to Alistair McDowell and to X. Um, I, I, yeah, I really am looking forward to seeing what all the fuss is about. Uh, and I, I love the way you guys are so enthusiastic about this play and have clearly given it a tremendous amount of thought, which is why I love these these conversations. It's like um, it's like the buzz, only I don't have to put on shoes. <laughs> so uh, 
anyway, out there, we hope that you enjoy these dialogues uh, too. And you can prove that to us by maybe giving us a quick review or a one-click rating um, or whatever feedback method appeals to you. We want to engage you in a way that we can, and your comments help us do just that. But if you'd like to reach us directly, our email address is behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org. Join the conversation. There really is so much to talk about. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company. It is directed by Anne-Marie Perez and me, Joe Kukin, and is recorded, mixed, and edited by the revolutionary Diane Walton.